The scripture reading for today comes from Mark 2, verses 13 through 17, and it can be found in the Blue Pew Bibles on page 837. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. The word of the Lord. I don't know uh, in your high school if you had uh, clubs like we had. Um, There was a club for the guys named Checkers and a club for the girls called the Marbles. I don't think there's any significance or one was better than the other. Just uh, play with Checkers, you play with Marbles, right? And uh, I I didn't get to be in the Checkers. I was in the Squires, which was kind of the leftover club, you know, for those of us who couldn't be in the checkers. But the checkers had a particular kind of plaid shirt, and they had checkers on it, and the marbles had a particular blue shirt, and they had marbles on it. So everywhere they were, when they wore their shirts, you knew who the checkers were, and you knew who the marbles were. And they were like the upper slice of our society in the high school, of what we thought, you know, the best athletes, the, um, the most beautiful, uh, the most popular in every respect. And it was carefully guarded as to who became a checker or a marble. And then I get to University of Alabama. Um, they had a little bit of a Greek system there. <laughs> I mean, they had, you know, sorority row. I mean, just huge house after house after house. Uh, And the same with the fraternity houses. But among the fraternity and sorority houses, I won't name them, but there were particular two or three that you most wanted to be in. And then you could look with disdain on all the, not only the whole campus, but all the other fraternities, you know, because you were in one of those fraternities. And, of course, it was based on wealth. It was based on uh, talent and ability and popularity and and personality. Um, But here we find that Jesus builds a fraternity that is very different than that. Very, very different. Shocking. Shocking as to the people that Jesus builds his fraternity sorority with. It was an offense uh, to the Pharisees, as we see, it was an offense as well to Roman society. So we we start here, though, just uh, a few minutes on the context of Christ's call, which 
probably is not apparent when you first look at this passage. But in each of the first three chapters, several times after acts of, that demonstrate God's power, saving power, Jesus retreats to either wilderness or the mountain or the sea. And several scholars have shown how Mark is uh, calling to mind the nature of the wilderness and the nature of the sea. Uh, that is, it, the wilderness is associated with spiritual forces that oppose God. As Jesus was driven into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, that's where he met Satan. And that's where he defeated Satan, where the Israel had not Israel had succumbed to temptation and fallen away from God in the wilderness. Jesus goes into the wilderness and opposes uh, Satan. Uh, The wilderness was always uh, associated with judgment and destruction in the Old Testament. But it was also where God manifested his glory and his greatness there in the wilderness. Isaiah declares that in Messiah's day, the wilderness will become a, a pool, a spring of water and a fruitful field. And there's no surprise then that in Mark 6, it's in the wilderness where Jesus feeds the 5,000. It's in the wilderness that he makes it a fruitful field and a spring of water. Uh, showing that Messiah has indeed come. The kingdom of God is at hand. But the sea has the same associations. So uh, God uh, you know, delivered Israel through the Red Sea, and then he judged the Egyptians with the sea. So destruction and judgment in the Old Testament are always pictured, many times pictured, as being engulfed by the sea. And even evil comes from the sea. It's so associated that in Isaiah 27, it says in that day, the final day, the Lord will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. Such is the association of sea uh, being a source of evil. And then when you get in the, uh, into Revelation, the dragon stands on the seashore and he brings the beast where? Out of the sea. That's why in Revelation 21.1, it says, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, and the sea is no more. Now, when I first read that, I was like, well, I like the ocean. I like seashells and waves and wind and, you know, but that's not what it's talking about. There may well be, you know, more glorious oceans or waters than we've ever seen in that day. But he's making the statement that, all evil will be removed in that day from this, uh, this picture of evil. After all, in Revelation 15, there's actually a sea of glass before the throne of God. So it just depends on what you want to image. But in Mark 4 and Mark 6, Jesus calms the raging sea. The place of the dragon, you see. The place where evil comes. He shows not only his power over this physical world, but his power over all powers in the world, spiritual and physical. And it's beside the sea in chapter 15 that he casts out the demons and he casts them into the pigs and they rush into the sea to be drowned. It's as though Jesus says, back where you belong, Satan. (laughs) If you understand 
the picture here. And it's there that he called his disciples by the sea. And it's there three more times besides this that it says he went to the sea and the crowd where he taught the crowd by the sea. So in the face of that which is pictured as chaos and destruction and evil, Jesus brings the word of God. The darkness will not overcome the light. So this is the context here of this action of, of Jesus. And never forget John's words in his letter. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. And in Acts 26, Paul was told, you're to open their eyes uh, as my servant so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God. You and I need dramatic deliverance. He comes to fetch us from our wilderness to rescue us from the sea or we will die, right? So, wonderful picture here of Christ uh, there at the sea and then coming from uh, being at the sea and teaching, he uh, calls Levi. So the context of Christ's call, but then the sheer mercy of Christ's call. Uh, there were certain taxes, uh, land taxes, that the Romans took up directly, but taxes on goods that are being transported from here to there were delegated out to lower people. Uh, and that's where Levi came in. Uh, he was in Capernaum or near Capernaum, and this is where the roads come from north and uh, east into Herod and uh, Herod the Great's territory, uh, Palestine. And so, if you're coming in, you got to pay your tax. Like the you know trucks sometimes have to pull off and be weighed. Uh, uh, going from state to state, well, here you got to pull off and you got to pay the man. Um, and, of course, you would you'd bid to get a certain area, and then you had this area, you had a certain amount that you had to pay up. So how do you make money? You make sure you take up not only what you're going to pay up, but a lot more to line your own pockets to make a living. And it was known that a very poor man could become a tax collector and he could become a very rich man. And, of course, it was wide open for greed, wide open for extortion. You had a power over people. Uh, and they became just proverbs for evil. It depended on those who would do this, who would turn their backs on everything Jewish and join up with the Romans to basically rape their own people. They've likened them to moles in the Nazi Germany. And you think how much you would hate someone who was trying to find out dirt on anybody he could, even his own family members, to turn them over to the Nazis to be sent to prison and possibly to death. That's who these people were. The most hateful aspect of Roman occupation was the military presence and then the presence of these tax collectors. You just see one and he's like, can't believe that guy. Can't believe what he's doing. And only the Jews of the most reckless character 
became uh, publicans or, or tax collectors. Uh, they were uh, lumped with thieves and murderers in the Jewish mind. They were disqualified as judges or witness in court. They were expelled from the synagogue. It was a disgrace to your family if you had a tax collector. The touch of a tax collector made a house unclean. Jews were forbidden to receive money, even alms, even donations. You can't receive them from a tax collector because they're regarded as, it was regarded as uh, those, that money as being the result of robbery. You could even lie to them and it didn't count. Like they weren't human beings anymore. So the same shock that was there when, P, when Jesus would touch a leper who's unclean is here, but now it's moral uncleanness. And it's even worse because this guy chose to be unclean. He chose to be this. And then he not only calls Levi, not, not just that he walked by and talked with him, he calls Levi as one of his followers. You know, the PR people at this point, you know, why? Where's his public relations representative? Who's in charge of marketing around here? Do you know what our boss just did? No. What, did he, what is it this time? He just called Levi to be one of his followers. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Which, you mean Matthew Levi? The tax collector? Are you kidding me? This is a disaster. Well, that's what a PR person would say, right? And so Celsus in the second century uses this. In his book, True Doctrine, which we only have because Origen quotes it, but he derides the insignificance of Christians. He compares them to a swarm of bats or ants creeping out of their nest or frogs holding a symposium around a swamp. That's the level with which he thinks of believers. And then he remarks that Jesus gathered around him 10 or 11 persons of notorious character, character, the very wickedest of tax farmers and sailors. Be that as it may, Jesus called Levi. <laughs> he knew all of this would happen. He knew what the Jews would say. He knew what Celsus would say. He knew the whole thing. He knew what a scandal this would create. And he invites Levi. And then his evil, in a sense, metastasizes as he goes into a party and sits down at dinner with not one but many tax collectors. Who is this guy? Well, it illustrates, and it's interesting how these are back to back. In the first 12 verses... We have the paralytic that is let down by the four men through the roof to be healed. And the first thing said to him was not be healed, rise and walk, but son, your sins are forgiven. Because that was his real distress. His real distress, the real purpose of Christ's presence. Yes, to heal, but that was a sign a sign, yes, of final resurrection and healing that will come in the final issue of the kingdom, but a sign of the healing of forgiveness. That's what this is about. And the same thing here, because he gets to verse 17. He says, I came not to call the righteous, 
but sinners. And this is to be the backdrop to carry us all the way through. All of his actions is about forgiving sinners and calling, forgiving sin and calling sinners till you get all the way toward the end of Mark where he says, the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the point of Messiah. It's for human sin. And then when he offers the cup, this is my blood of the covenant that is poured out for many. I came to redeem sinners. You see, when Jesus shared this fellowship with these tax gatherers and sinners, this was unthinkable to a Jew. It was Messiah who was sitting with sinners. This was Messiah sitting with sinners. The, the indication in verse 15, uh, when it says they were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, it was probably at Levi's house, but the indication is that Jesus is the host. He's the one. This, and, and several scholars say this is in anticipation uh, in Mark's theology of when Messiah will sit down with sinners in the kingdom of God. Here's an initial picture of what's going to happen. Sinners of the worst, kind, most hated, despised, despicable people you can find. Let's have a party together. And many of these men hadn't repented yet. He's not waiting for them to jump through a bunch of hoops before he loves them and cares for them. You get that, right? His love is there. It's not saying that they're automatically saved because they're, they're there. But Jesus is manifesting his love and acceptance in that regard for them as human beings. Something they had never received from any Jew, especially a teacher of the Jews, a religious leader. This was such an offense to the Pharisees. Their name originally meant separated, pure. And they, they didn't want to even touch or talk to a Gentile any more than they had to. But, but to eat a meal means to associate, to be identified with that person. Jesus is openly identifying with the worst people of that society. Not because he approved of their evil, because he loved them. He loved them. And he came for sinners. This this saying, one one interpretation is that uh, I came not to call the righteous. The righteous is a, it's like a uh, satire. It's like if there were such and you think you're righteous, but you're not. Uh, I, I lean toward the view that uh, he came into the world for sinners, which all of us are. 
I didn't come in the world for right. That's not the whole point. The world is in sin. The world is deluged. It's, it's at the bottom of the ocean in sin. All the world. I came for sinners. Of course, I'm here with the sinners. That's what I came for is sinners. And of course, if the Pharisees could understand that and they understand the real point of Messiah is not to underscore how great they are and how righteous they are, but to redeem them, Jew and Gentile. And there could be the beginning of humility, recognition of this glorious one who came. So here he is extending them, offering to them the fellowship of God through Messiah. It's like a demonstration of the forgiveness that was expressed to the paralytic earlier in this uh, chapter. And the, 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 the sense of this, of, of the, the, the offense of this, uh, for him to be extending this in a place where the Jews didn't expect. You see, there's a guest list in the kingdom of God that they don't approve of. <laughs> a guest list that wouldn't be their guest list. And Jesus speaks of this. We'll get to it in a, uh, in a minute. But imagine a doctor who refuses to see his patients. Or, or a doctor who doesn't want to see any sick person. It's just crazy. And that's why this, this uh, uh, little par- parable is used even by pagans. It's the sick who have need of a physician. And, and brothers and sisters, friends, uh, obviously, this means two things. One... It does describe what you need more than anything else in your life. Is you need Messiah, the, the sent one of God, the God himself come in the flesh, who went to the cross, as, he, as, as we read, and gave himself as a ransom, stood in our place to bear the punishment that we deserve. That's what he came to do. And he came then to call to himself any and all sinners of every kind. And if you put yourself outside of that or think you don't need that or even you don't need it as much as others, that's not the point. It's that you're desperately in need of this forgiveness. Every one of you. So there may be some of you that kind of Well, I can understand if this or that or another kind of person are here. And those are the kind of people that the church attracts and all this. But, you know, I'm one of the good ones. I'm successful. I'm popular. I I do belong to all the good clubs. I have the great job. I'm making a lot of money. Um, I, I just don't have these kinds of problems. I don't need this kind of redemption. But when God comes to the earth, he comes to rescue. He comes to rescue at the cost of his own blood as a human being. But then there may be some of you who just think, I I know he died for sinners. I know he calls sinners, but not like me, not as 
horrible is not the thoughts I've had, not the motives I have, not the things I've done that are so horrific. Yeah, yeah, actually, yes. And you've heard us say this before, but you imagine uh, somebody who's very, very poor and some person of means wants to help them. And the poor person is arguing to them, but you don't understand how poor I am. Imagine how crazy that conversation would be. I, I, I know you're very, very poor. That's why I want to have. No, no, you don't understand. I don't have anything. Exactly why I want to help you. you know? But, but I, I'm, I have no place to stay. I have no money. I, that's why I want you. That's just crazy. It's the same thing with a sick person. But doc, you don't know how sick I am. I'm, I'm probably, no, if you are sick, you're first in, you know, when you're at the emergency room, the cutting scratches go first or heart attack go first. Well, you're coming to Jesus with spiritual heart attack. Yeah, that's what he's here for, for the worst things, for anything, for all things, all sin. And we have here this picture of forgiveness. And if we had time, I would love to just close our eyes for about five minutes and just imagine all your sins are forgiven and you're in the presence of God. You're in the presence of Jesus forever. And his smile is upon you and nothing can take that smile away from you. It's the forgiveness is so apparent that you're sitting at fellowship with Jesus and forever it's pictured as this banquet of feasting and rejoicing as we rejoice in his great salvation of us sinners. So, Jesus calls you sinner. It doesn't matter what kind of sinner, how bad a sinner, he calls you. He called Levi. A tax gatherer. He's here inviting all these tax gatherers, giving them a picture of what fellowship with God could be. Amazing love. But then there's our participation in Christ's call. I'm taking that from just verse 14. That This Levi now is a disciple. He becomes one of the apostles. He becomes one who's bringing this message to others, and the word "follow" is basically synonymous with faith in Mark. They're brought together again and again. It defines what happens when someone responds to him. Even Jesus says, "If you're going to come after me, you must deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. If you trust me, if you entrust your life to me, you must follow me." And a vital aspect of following him is to follow him in his ministry, to follow him in his love to sinners, to follow him in the joy of seeing them brought to Christ. And it's interesting, you know, we, we said that his, their moral repentance is not a precondition of his love. And... They don't change to gain his love, but because Jesus loves them, perhaps they will change, right? We change in light of the fact that he loves us. How is that love communicated to people? 
You know how it's communicated to people. What's the first line of draw and attraction? It's our love that is expressing Christ's love, that manifests Christ's love to them. When they couldn't expect it, when they didn't know it was going to happen, when they're used to religious people staying away from them or looking down their nose at them or compromising and being hypocritical in front of them. You know, he initiates with Zacchaeus, I must stay at your house today, tax collector. I'm going to openly come to you. Jesus sowed love in all direction, no matter what the response, like the sower who threw seed on all kinds of soil. And this offended people then, it offends people now. Now, your version, my version could be to avoid such ministries and such churches. You, will, you like insulation. Uh, you like comfort and dignity and and reputation, you're going to be governed by fear and pride instead of associating yourself in this way. And, you know, behind all this is our thinking of, uh, you know, I'm really was closer to Jesus or God to start with than these people were. That's part of this thinking, you know. Yeah, I needed salvation, but not as much as, you know, He didn't have to go as far to get you. He didn't have to forgive as much. He didn't have to look over as much sin. Are are we Christ or are we the tax collectors here? That's the real question. And in Luke chapter 15, it's interesting, uh, the contrast It says, there again, tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Same situation, right? So, he told them this parable. It's the parable of the lost sheep. Seeking lost sheep. Then the parable of the coin. I say it better now. The the lost coin, right? And seeking after. And then the parable of the son who abandons the father but then comes back and the father runs to greet him and holds him versus the older brother who resents him being there and you see what you see what the choices are we're either pharisees who do not value these people and we're not going to reach out to them and we resent Jesus wanting us to Oh, we're part of seeking. We're, we're offering and demonstrating in some way the Father's love that would envelop them. It's pretty rough. Jesus is rough here. And what did he say? Deny yourself. Take up the cross. The cross represents the world's rejection. Take up that cross Maybe you'll get rejection even as you seek to love people. Take it up. Take it up. Deny yourself. Follow me. Follow me in love. And I'll remind you over and over and over again, when Jesus was talking about this kind of love, he said in John 15, I'm telling you these things so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. 
It costs everything, but you gain everything in the midst of it. And you lose the worst parts about you and me. You know, and if we can begin to admit our prejudices and our preferences and the limits of our love, how little we love people and cry out for mercy, we might understand our need of mercy more than we ever have. You know? That my hardness and my pride, my lack of compassion for people shows the common denominator I have with anybody my ungodliness, I'm so unlike God who came in the flesh to seek and save that which is lost. That's what God's like. I'm fundamentally ungodly, but by his grace and mercy, we're being made into God-like people who love like Jesus loves. And I'll just touch on this the refusal of the Pharisees. Jesus, when he saw this centurion's faith, when uh, the centurion told him about his servant being sick and Jesus started to go see him. And, and remember the centurion, he says, no, 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 you, you don't have to go. He said, I know what authority is. I, I tell these troops to go there. They go, they tell these troops to go there. I'm under authority. I know about authority. Just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus, I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. Here's this Gentile speaking and trusting my power, my salvation. And then he says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness. So you and I have the great privilege of being involved in the scandal of grace. The scandal of grace. Where we'll become a part of that scandal. We'll become a part of that movement of love. We'll be part of those who are embracing the most despised even in our society. And some will be the greatest in our society, but they're just as much in need of the grace of God. And we will love them in Christ. We would seek to demonstrate that love and we will speak to them of this Savior and what he's come to do. And Jesus will gather his people. Jesus will gather his people because he has come to seek and save those that are lost. He comes to call sinners. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we praise your great name that you, we praise you, oh God, that you are a God who seeks to save sinners. You're a God who didn't stay aloof and distant from the terrible rejection and and refusal of human beings. They're turning their back, our turning our backs on you and Lord, worshiping anything but you. Even in the face of that, even while we were sinners, Christ came, God in the flesh, to die 
Oh, Lord. We agree with Paul. It's, it's singular love. It, it exists nowhere except in God himself. Thank you, Lord, that as we sang earlier, as Jacob sang to us, that we are in the feast. But why were we made to hear when so many don't? We, we would still be in that situation had you not drawn us to yourself. We are just as lost and helpless and sinful as any other person in the world. We needed the same grace. And we're here by your grace. Oh, Lord, may we, as that song goes on to, longing for the nations to come, may we be a part of that. And the more we realize the compassion and love that has rescued us who needed it so desperately, may we then more and more freely manifest that love to those around us that they may come to know this glorious God. We ask this for your glory and honor, Lord. Amen.